0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business with a deep-rooted heritage in oncology and a commitment to developing cancer medicines for patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with doctors Howard Hoxter, Anish Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, in honor of Breast Cancer Awareness Month, it's a conversation about reconstructive surgery for breast cancer patients with Dr. Michael Alperovich. Dr. Alperovitch is an Assistant Professor of Plastic Surgery at the Yale School of Medicine. And Dr. Chagpar is an Associate Professor in the Department of Surgery at Yale School of Medicine and the Assistant Director for Global Oncology at Yale Comprehensive Cancer Center.
1: Mike, you know, we work together quite a bit in the operating room, and I thought what we'd do is really take this from the standpoint of a patient because breast cancer is the leading malignancy affecting women, and a lot of patients are faced with the decision of, you know, what do I do in terms of surgery? And when I see patients, um, I talk to them about you can have a partial mastectomy or breast-conserving surgery. This is also called a lumpectomy or you can have a mastectomy. Now, after a mastectomy, people have choices with regards to whether they want to be flat or whether they want reconstruction, which can often be done at the same time. So why don't we start there? What are the advantages and disadvantages of having your reconstruction done at the same time as the mastectomy?
2: It's a great question. I think... uh there's a few just logistical uh, advantages. One, uh, if you do the reconstruction at the same time as the mastectomy, you are taking advantage of one operating room trip, one hospital stay, one recovery period. So you're able to uh, take care of both the extirpative portion, removing the tumor, as well as the breast reconstructive portion at the same time. From a uh, an outcomes perspective, we know that if you do the immediate reconstruction and you preserve the skin envelope and we're able to preserve the integrity of the breast, at the time of mastectomy, we have actually superior aesthetic outcomes. So it's easier for you as a patient to recover, you have better results, and from a psychological benefit, you go to sleep with breasts and you wake up with breasts. And I think it's a lot easier uh, to be able to get through uh, the whole process knowing that you don't have to have a period where you're actually uh, without breasts.
1: Yeah, And, and just for our audience, In most circumstances, that's an option. Uh, The one circumstance where I can think of where it's really not an option is in inflammatory breast cancer. Um, But aside from that, are there other contraindications to immediate reconstruction from your standpoint?
2: So I I agree with you. I think uh, reconstruction is something that's uh, possible for almost any patient. I agree with you. Inflammatory breast cancer and certainly a small portion of my practice is devoted to patients who had aggressive tumors and didn't feel that they wanted to suffer or go through the extra recovery or pain or discomfort of reconstruction and chose to just have the mastectomy. Uh, Certainly, if someone has other medical conditions that make any longer surgical time, either uh, reconstruction, even as simple as a tissue expander, uh, not in their best health and self-interest, then in those cases we'll say, look, we're not comfortable with pursuing reconstruction given just the general uh, tenuousness of your health conditions. So we'll do what's absolutely necessary, which is removing the tumor, but we won't elect to prolong your anesthetic and recovery time with the reconstruction.
1: And so so for most patients, they can have immediate reconstruction and then Then we get into the whole potpourri of options with regards to immediate reconstruction. So can you kind of break it down for us in terms of what are people's options and what are advantages and disadvantages of each and how do you kind of decide what's an optimal reconstruction for a given patient?
2: So I will say that there are many options, and this, typical, this typically takes over an hour of discussion with the patient, and oftentimes I will have the initial discussion, and if there is time, I'll have the patient come back in a week or two to reinforce and repeat a lot of the discussion because I know how complicated this can get. The main two categories are either implant reconstruction, using breast implants, not unlike a patient who undergoes cosmetic augmentation, and the other big category is using your own tissue, which we call flaps, basically doing a transplant plant where we transfer tissue from one part of your body to reconstruct a breast. The option that's best for the patient really depends on that patient's individual goals and objectives, as well as their body type, cancer, and uh, what they have in terms of their own mindset of what an aesthetic reconstruction involves. Uh, The big advantage of an implant reconstruction is there's no new scarring. We use the same axis incision as you use for the mastectomy. Uh, The operation adds about an hour to hour and a half per breast side at the time of surgery. And it's generally a chance for you to get back on your feet faster and more quickly with less uh, less pain and discomfort. The disadvantage is that it is an implant and certainly implants feel and look, although they're very good, they still feel and look less normal and realistic than normal breast tissue. And implants do have a life expectancy, they're not forever. So if someone is in their 30s or 40s, they should anticipate that over the next 10, 15, 20 years, they'll probably require some exchange and removal of that either ruptured or old implant. The advantage of using your own tissue is that it is your own tissue and certainly if someone someone's available for it, I tend to bias towards that option because we replace like with like. We take fat from your belly or your thigh, you're up your butt, and we make breast tissue out of it. And it feels like breast tissue, it looks like breast tissue, and it's your tissue. It'll never get rejected, it'll never have to be replaced or removed. Once it heals, it's there forever. And these patients, I find, eventually forget about their breast cancer, and they move on and just accept these as their new breasts without any sort of the reminders that you get often with implants and screenings to make sure there's no rupture or other issue infection. The big disadvantage, obviously, is the recovery time from borrowing tissue from another part of your body is significantly longer. And I tell patients this is an upfront buy-in. You commit to a longer recovery right at the start, but you sacrifice uh, all the recovery at the beginning for a prolonged and lasting impact that'll that'll be with you the rest of your life.
1: So I, I want to dig a little bit deeper into those two categories, right? So with the implant, you know, A lot of people need a tissue expander first, and then there's an implant that's exchanged afterwards. Can you kind of talk a little bit about that? So it's actually not exactly only one operation. Absolutely.
2: So regardless of what reconstructive approach you go through, I always tell patients, plan on nine to 12 months to get through reconstruction. That's what's typically required in my hands, as well as in the national sort of landscape. And why is that the case? Well, for an implant reconstruction, let's say you do, uh, as you mentioned, oftentimes you won't put in the full-size implant right at the start. In the 1980s, there was this idea of two-stage tissue expander implant reconstruction. So at the time of the mastectomy, we place a tissue expander, which is just a shell of an implant, fill it with a little bit of water. And then after several subsequent office visits, we eventually fill that implant to the full size of what we want. What that allows the mastectomy skin to do is to heal. And it also allows the pec muscle under which the implant is sitting as well as the skin to stretch. So you get both Uh, a a breast mound, an envelope, and as well as pec muscle under which the implant sits to stretch and accommodate the full size that you want. Uh, And I would say that's about 75% of all implant reconstructions nationwide include these two stages. So at first you have the mastectomy, you place a tissue expander, you follow up in the office, we fill them up with water. Once they're at the full adequate size, you go back to the operating room, we take out the tissue expander and we replace it with a permanent implant, which can either be water filled, which is saline, or it could be gel-filled or silicone, and uh, if you if you elect to have a single implant uh, stage reconstruction, you wanna just get the permanent implant at the start. Typically, these are patients who are older or don't wanna go through the extra operation, and then also patients who are willing, with a slightly smaller breast envelope, to have a breast size that's smaller than their original preoperative size. Uh, but even if you undergo a flap option, You still often will require some revisionary surgery, a nipple reconstruction, an areolar tattoo, and although all these subsequent operations are outpatient, short procedures, minimal anesthetic, I do tell patients plan on nine to 12 months until you're completely done with everything, regardless of your steps.
1: Right, and so the other question that a lot of patients have that's concerning to them is this whole concept of the implants rupturing. How common is that?
2: So, I I would say I've seen patients who've had them for 30 or 40 years and they're still intact. Uh, They are guaranteed for 10 years by the manufacturer, uh, but if you're like me, I've certainly eaten a, a loaf of bread that expired yesterday and I've had it and I've done okay. And for that same reason, if I see a patient who's had their implant for 11 or 12 or 13 years, I don't take them to the OR and prophylactically remove it. I've had patients who with, with barring a car accident or, you know, a jujitsu hobby who will have these implants for decades, uh, but they can rupture. The one thing that I often emphasize to patients is there's a, a natural capsule that your body forms around any implant. It's uh, It forms it around any, actually any foreign body at all. So if you have uh, a knee replacement or you step on a, a nail and you have a nail lodged in your foot, it'll naturally wall it off. And this fibrotic capsule actually preserves any contents of that implant. So even if you have a silicone implant and it ruptures, that silicone isn't going to go through your bloodstream and around your body. It's going to sit in that capsule. And oftentimes, while if I see it ruptured, I will take the patient to the OR and remove it and replace it. I often emphasize this is not an emergency. This is not a risk to your life or your health. This is something we should do ideally within the next few weeks.
1: Mm -hmm. And so are there certain tests that you mandate that people have to look for these ruptures, or do you kind of look for them with, say, an MRI as and when there's clinical indication?
2: So that's a very controversial issue among plastic surgeons. The FDA does recommend that if you have a silicone implant, that you have an MRI three years after the implant is placed, and then every two years thereafter. I can tell you of the half million silicone implants that have been placed in the United States in the last year, that's 60 to 70 percent of those are for cosmetic indications. An MRI costs about $1,000. So the majority of patients who have silicone implants are not capable of of affording MRIs every two or three years. And those patients live with the same implant without getting routine screening. Breast reconstruction patients are in a favorable position because this is covered by insurance for them and they can obtain routine screening. Generally, barring any clinical signs of rupture, and that would often be deformation of the breast, hardening of the breast, pain or discomfort, it's rare to actually have a positive MRI finding barring clinical symptoms. Uh, But I do recommend patients, if you wanna be absolutely safe. That is FDA recommendation. If they have a water-filled or saline implant and that ruptures, then in those cases, you don't need an MRI because if the water-filled implant ruptures, it's like a balloon. That water disperses in that capsule and gradually gets reabsorbed to your body. So those patients will be very obvious when they're ruptured. They'll come in and they'll say, my one breast looks smaller and flat compared to the other, and then we just can come back and replace it.
1: Okay. And the other question that I think a lot of people ask is, Uh, about uh, the news stories that have been coming out about leukemias or lymphomas associated with implants. How much weight is there to that? How much truth is that? How common is that? Should people really be worried about that?
2: So this is something that is new to uh, the mainstream because it was covered in the New York Times and all over, you know, evening news in the last couple of months. But this is something that in our plastic surgery community is well known. I'm on actually a breast implant task force where we talk about the Yale New Haven Health System and... And what implants we cover, and we had actually discussed whether or not to use textured implants. So this is something we've known for at least five years now. Essentially, the data shows that there are certain types of implants that are associated with an extremely rare lymphoma. How rare is this lymphoma? Well, there are about 400 reported cases in the entire world. And how many implants do we place worldwide? About one to 1.5 million. So you figure one to 1.5 million implants over the last 10 or 15 years, and we have 400 cases. You're more likely to get in a plane crash drive, flying to LA or a car accident driving home than you are in getting uh, a lymph- lymphoma. The inf- interesting fact was that there was a certain shell or capsule uh, that the implant has that's more associated with this lymphoma. It's called a textured uh, capsule, so instead of having a smooth surface, it looks more like a rippled surface like you would find like a, a, a lot of rocks. And In those particular cases, what we found is that those patients have a higher risk and for that reason, I tend not to use textured implants.
1: Great. Well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. But right after the break, we're going to talk more about the other kind of reconstruction, autologous reconstruction, with my guest, Dr. Michael Alperovich.
0: Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, working to change the cancer paradigm through personalized medicine. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about head and neck cancers, Although the percentage of oral and head and neck cancer patients in the United States is only about 5% of all diagnosed cancers, there are challenging side effects associated with these types of cancer and their treatment. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers. In many cases, less radical surgeries are able to preserve nerves, arteries, and muscles in the neck, enabling patients to move, speak, breathe, and eat normally after surgery. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source, for news and ideas.
1: This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Michael Alperovich. We're talking about breast reconstruction uh, after cancer. Now Right before the break, we started talking a lot about uh, implant-based reconstruction, which is one big category. So, Mike, maybe you can give us kind of the breakdown. How many patients get implant-based reconstruction? How many patients get autologous reconstruction?
2: Uh, nationally, the ratio is actually skewing more towards implant. It's about 80% of patients nationwide obtain implant-based reconstruction. We're a unique place here at Smilo because we tend to be a tertiary referral center, and so we have the um, interest and the expertise to do more microvascular autologous reconstruction. So our numbers are closer to 50-50, uh, which is unusual for, uh, for for the majority of the country.
1: Right, because it does take a special expertise to know how to hook up those blood vessels under the microscope. So let's talk a little bit about autologous reconstruction. How do you know when somebody is a good candidate? A lot of patients will tell me, I would love to have a tummy tuck. And yet, when they go to see the plastic surgeon, sometimes the plastic surgeon would say, you don't have enough tissue or you've got a scar there. What kinds of things go into your calculus of deciding whether a patient is a good patient for autologous reconstruction?
2: So the first thing is that they need to have available tissue. Now, the most common site is really their belly fat. And the fat that we can use is the belly fat that's from the belly button down to really your pubic area. That fat, that ellipse of skin is what we can use to make breast tissue. If that fat is not adequate to match your volume, you have to question, do you want to be the same size as your preoperative breast size. And if you do and your belly tissue isn't adequate, or you don't have another adequate donor site from either your thighs or your butt, then that's oftentimes a reason not to pursue autologous options. The next thing that we do is we do look at scarring. We wanna make sure that the blood vessels that we transfer with the fat are adequate and viable in order to keep that fat alive. Now, if patients have had prior surgeries, uh, that's not a contraindication. We frequently operate on patients with prior abdominal surgery or, other surgery, but it just makes the scarring and the operative dissection a little bit harder. What I do is I get a CAT scan for every patient and I look at the blood vessels themselves to make sure that they're adequate and suitable for reconstruction. The only sort of contraindication I can find is patients will say, I have tons of fat right here. It has to be fat that actually has a good, well-defined blood vessel anatomy. So the way we keep that belly fat alive is we take the blood vessels from that part of the body with the fat and skin. We find similarly sized vessels in the chest. And then we connect the blood vessels from your belly or your thigh to the blood vessels in your chest. To give you a sense of how big they are, they're about two to three millimeters in diameter. So if you look at the head of a pen, it's smaller than the head of a pen. And the reason it's called microsurgery is we actually use a microscope to sew the lumen of the artery to the lumen of the artery of the chest and the vein to the vein. And we use suture that's essentially finer than a strand of human hair. If their blood vessels aren't appropriately uh, sized or viable, or there isn't fat in the distribution of those blood vessels, then they can't get this reconstruction.
1: And so there are a number of procedures that people talk about when they talk about belly fat. right? Like So in the past, a lot of people were talking about tram flaps. Um, Now people are talking about deep flaps. People were talking about muscle sparing tram flaps. Can you kind of break down what all of these terms mean and what's better? Sure. Or so um,
2: you essentially what you do when you take... When you, so muscle sparing tram, tram deep, all these refer to transferring your belly fat to make a breast. The first operation in the early 1980s was called the pedicle tram, where they would basically take your belly fat and rotate it on its blood vessels and into your chest from your abdomen. And what that did was sacrifice all of the abdominal wall and muscle. So although patients had a great reconstruction, they often had significant abdominal weak. Or hernias that created major problems for these patients. In the you know, later period, they started doing what they called free trams, where they would just transfer the belly fat and uh, uh, skin and abdominal wall to the chest and take a little bit less abdominal wall and a little bit less muscle. But this still had a lot of consequences to the patient. And then there was iterations of these to try to take less and less muscle and less and less abdominal wall. And muscle sparing trams try to do that. Uh, what I do, and essentially 95% plus of my reconstruction is called the deep flap, which I uh, actually learned, from the first person to ever do a deep flap in the world, Bob Allen. And he was my teacher. And I essentially do it the same way he does it. And what he innovated was he said, look, instead of taking the even a little bit of abdominal wall or a little bit of muscle, let's just take the blood vessels, period. And I spare all the abdominal wall. I spare all the abdominal muscle. And so patients who are athletic, who like to do exercises, sit-ups, they can still continue all these exercises after surgery. And there's very little morbidity to the abdominal wall. And that was really the iteration. It was first performed in the early 90s, 92, 93. And it's now certainly my standard of care. And I think at any major center, I think a deep flap is what you should strive for because it does have such a better risk profile. It's a much more complicated operation. You're doing small single one to two millimeter vessel dissections, but it's such a better result for patients that I really, I I can't justify doing, not doing it if I have the opportunity.
1: What about if people don't have enough belly tissue but they say, listen, I've got big thighs or a big butt, can you use that tissue?
2: Absolutely. So the 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 point that I try to make is that if you are interested in autologous reconstruction, we can almost always find a donor site for you. The belly is going to be first line in over 80% of patients, but there are other options. For instance, we recently did a profunda artery perforator flap where we actually took upper thigh skin and fat and transferred it to make breasts for a patient who didn't have adequate abdominal tissue. This operation is less commonly done because most women do have fat in their belly, but for the woman who has more of a thicker thighs or buttock area, we can transfer tissue from there rather than the belly and still provide adequate size match. It's a less common operation, Uh, it's slightly more difficult to do, Uh, and I would say as few places that offer the deep flap, even fewer will offer the PAP or the S-GAP. I will say that we do offer all of it at Yale, and I'm happy that we're able to provide really the cutting edge options to all of our patients.
1: What about other options that some people have heard about? Things like a latissimus flap, and and sometimes they'll combine that with an implant. How often is that done, and when, when do you consider that?
2: Very rarely. That is, for me, the final salvage operation. Um, latissimus flap involves rotating your back, skin, fat, and back muscle, and rotating it to recreate your chest. If you want increased volume and projection, you can add an implant underneath that muscle and skin to provide improved volume. This is an operation that I think is a last option for patients who either can't have an implant reconstruction or don't have an adequate tissue or not a good candidates for a, a free flap option from their belly or their thigh. The downside of this operation to me is that, you, one, you sacrifice a major muscle, the latissimus. So if doing pull-ups for climbing ladders or even using your arms to push up out of a chair are important to you, there is documented weakness from doing latissimus muscle and sacrificing that muscle. I think aesthetically provides a less ideal result because you often end up with a lot of bulky tissue near your armpit where that rotation of latissimus muscle occurs. And uh, finally, I just think we have many superior options available such as the deep flap or the pap flap or the S-gap flap today that uh, supersede the need for latissimus flap. However, when do I do it? I'm actually doing one in a couple of weeks, and it's for a patient who has radiation, is not a good candidate for an implant, and not a good candidate for an autologous option because of clotting issues. And in her particular case, because she needs a reconstruction and she can't use the existing breast skin, needs to replace it with healthy skin, I'm going to be doing a latissimus flap as my last-ditch effort to try to replace some of that radiated skin with healthy back skin and fat.
1: So that's a nice segue into my next question, which is, you know, a lot of people talk about reconstruction and radiation as a marriage that doesn't mix. So some people say you really, you. some people have said you can never have reconstruction after radiation. And you've kind of already pointed out that yes, you can. Other people have also said you don't really want to have radiation over reconstruction. Can you kind of kind of clarify some of the myths that are out there with regards to radiation and reconstruction?
2: Just as our specialty in plastic surgery has evolved and as we've moved from pedicle trams to free trams to deep flaps, I think we also have to acknowledge that there's been a lot of change in the radiation oncology field and the degree of radiation and the damage of radiation injury has changed over the last several decades. And I think now there's increasing evidence that radiation and implant or even or flap reconstruction are not necessarily completely contraindicated. We do know that radiation has a damaging effect on all tissue, including flaps, including implants. Implants in particular, the capsule that forms around them is particularly susceptible to radiation, and about 30% of patients develop thickening and deformation of their capsule, which can be extremely uncomfortable. These, For these reasons, if someone is scheduled for radiation or is likely to have radiation, I will often try to discourage them from an implant reconstruction, knowing that there's about a 25 to 30% either failure or high Aesthetic dissatisfaction rate with implant reconstruction. This is national across all universities and major centers. That being said, we still occasionally do require radiation in the setting of implant reconstruction, either because it was unexpected or because the patient is not a free flap candidate for whatever reason. And even those patients, we've been able to obtain fairly good results. The big thing to understand is that radiation is an unknown, and everyone responds differently to it. You can have severe changes to your skin that make you look like you have high third degree burns, or you can go through it and there may be very minimal evidence on your breast that you ever had radiation. But because of that unknown, it's something that I often warn patients about as an important thing and consideration when planning reconstruction. There's recent evidence actually out of the University of Michigan where they studied patients who had immediate flaps and then underwent reconstruction. And these patients had excellent aesthetic results with minimal damage from the radiation. And I think at our institution, we've followed a similar protocol where we are actually performing immediate reconstruction, even if we know that they're going to have radiation. And although I wouldn't do that for an implant, for a flap, these patients tend to weather it quite well, and they're happy to be able to combine the reconstructive and extirpative surgeries into one uh, with fairly good results despite even radiation afterwards.
1: And so for the patients who have breast conserving surgery, and we know that those patients will need radiation, and then they get a recurrence, does that mean that they can never have reconstruction because they've had radiation in the past, say, five or 10 years ago?
2: Absolutely not. If radiation uh, certainly can make... uh, and first of all, you can always get autologous or flap reconstruction, even if you had breast conservation therapy and radiation. And you can even have implant reconstruction if you've had a previous history of radiation. I, just last week, I, we did a case with someone who had Hodgkin's lymphoma and had radiation. I think you, we've shown that you can have opportunities to reconstruct someone in the setting of radiation. We actually published a paper in our Plastic Surgery Landmark Journal about this three years ago where we studied patients who had a remote history of radiation uh, five, 10, 15 years ago for breast conservation therapy, and they successfully underwent implant reconstruction. We know that the further out you get from radiation, the better your skin heals and recovers. So if someone is going to get an implant and then they get radiation, I will wait at least six months before I remove that temporary tissue expander and put in an implant. And if you wait 12 months, the data shows that it's even lower complicated risk. So extrapolate that out. If you had breast conservation therapy and radiation 10 years ago, by the time you're ready for a mastectomy and implant reconstruction, that skin has had 10 years to recover. And as long as the skin looks pliable, I will still often offer radiation to that patient population.
1: Yeah. I think it's an important point to make because a lot of patients really worry about that. So I want to go back and talk about one area uh, where we work together a lot, which is not often um, thought about or talked about, and that's in the area of breast conservation. Um, we work together a lot when when I do a mastectomy and you do immediate reconstruction, but in breast conservation there is something called an oncoplastic procedure where we work together as well. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how that works?
2: Sure. We do breast reductions on a regular basis, and that involves rotating the nipple and areola to more- more youthful, higher position, and then we essentially tighten the breast envelope. Well, what if that area that we remove a breast tissue actually has a cancer? The idea is we work together, you cut out the cancer, and then I use your area where you cut it out and remove a little bit more tissue to rearrange it to essentially do a breast reduction and lift, encompassing your re, uh, resection. For us, it's a chance to give them a great aesthetic result, and it's also a chance to uh, provide limited morbidity and uh, aesthetic contour issues following the breast conservation. Dr. Michael
0: Alperovich is an assistant professor of plastic surgery at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.